Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things, friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. It is hard for a pastor to know what to do on a day like this when there are so many important things in the news, the, the storms in particular, um, captured my imagination. And so uh, just telling you now, when we get to the, to the prayer time, we'd like for you to feel free to come and represent, maybe it's your hometown, or represent folks that you are concerned about at the altar, and, and we will get to that. And in fact, it's kind of the last move of the sermon anyway. But this is an important word that we have to hear today. Um, but some of you may have, in, in, in hearing the scripture read, you may already be crying foul because, wait a minute, that's not what my Bible says. It says pretty clearly in my Bible, in verse 15, if another member of the church sins against you, and you will notice that we left that out. So how, where do you get off, John, changing scripture? Well, I got permission from Dr. Tashton. And in fact, I actually wanted to have him come uh, today and talk to us a little bit about this. I mean, what better day than um, Kids Sunday to talk about the original languages and textual criticism, right? <laughs> so go ahead and come on down, Dr. Tashin. Uh, this is a guy, uh, he, this was my Old Testament professor, uh, New Testament professor. Dr. Bratcher was my Old Testament professor. And as you now know, uh, while Dr. Bratcher is, is teaching Sunday school here, uh, Dr. Tashin is our word and table pastor, but a Greek scholar, a Greek scholar. And so I have asked him, to, is this one on? Are we ready to go? Okay. So I've asked him to answer a couple of questions as it has to do with the fact that I did, in fact, leave out those two words, sins against you. We've got to talk about something else, not you being personally offended. We've got to talk about how the church works when somebody strays off like a wandering sheep. And so I begin with this question for you. Can you confirm or deny that the original language of the Bible is King James Version? <laughs> well, that's an easy question. Okay. To <laughs> so it wasn't the King James Version, right? No, that's not no, the original. Actually, no. when I used to teach, I did have somebody want to argue with me that the King James was the original, like original God spoke language. it. Yeah, because God says thou. Anyway, um, the original language is, is Greek. So... How do we have the scriptures translated into English that we're all carrying around today? And can you give us a quick description of how that process worked? Well, of course, uh, translation into our language have come about uh, for several centuries. Uh, obviously, King James uh, was one of the early ones. Even before that, there were other translations into English. Um, but uh, what happened in succeeding uh, centuries is that some manuscripts, quite a few manuscripts of the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, but I'm concerned here with the New Testament, uh, were discovered. Hmm. And uh, these manuscripts don't all agree with one another. And so scholars went to work trying to figure out what is the text of the New Testament by checking all these manuscripts of the New Testament. There may be about 5,000 or more manuscripts. Some of them 
are very small. Maybe the smallest one is the size of my palm, front and back, a passage from the Gospel of John. But then other manuscripts uh, contain more. Uh, very, very few manuscripts contain the whole New Testament. Uh, maybe two, three, one or two, maybe uh, that might have all of the whole New Testament. Okay. But most of the manuscripts are either just a fragment or maybe uh, several books like the Gospels, uh, but very few of them have the whole New Testament. Okay. Okay, so I think I heard you say that there are 5,000 or so original manuscripts that have been cobbled together and scholars over the centuries have, have kind of argued back and forth as to what should go into print, let's into, say. Right, yes. Okay. Uh, but let me say that you said original manuscripts. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we have any of the writings of the authors of the New Testament uh, in any of these manuscripts. These are copies of copies of copies. Okay. And uh, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have might go to the third or fourth centuries okay. AD. So these, these manuscripts are gathered and it kind of kicks off a conversation that we continue to have to this day as to what words should be on the page and what words probably should not be on the page. That's right. Um, and uh, scholars, uh, way different possibilities as to, uh, I have here in my hand the Greek New Testament. Almost on every page, there are footnotes that indicate variants to the text, depending on what manuscript, so that uh, scholars have to weigh different uh, readings of the New Testament, and then most of the variants are not all that significant. But uh, this one today is pretty. In style, but yeah. then there are some that are rather significant. Yeah. So you and I talked about it earlier this week. In fact, I called. We meet every Wednesday to talk about the sermon. I called you before that though and said, Dr. Tashin, I got a problem. I got a problem because we have this little textual variant, is what we call it, and there's this note. And half the books that I'm reading to support the sermon say, you should leave out these two words against you. And the other half say, no, you should leave it in there. How do I determine, how do we determine that it's the right thing to do, at least for us today, to go ahead and leave those two words out? Well, um, that's, a, that's a question that scholars themselves try to answer. Yeah. Uh, how do we decide whether those two words uh, should be left in the text against you or left out? Well, uh, this particular uh, version of the Greek New Testament um, gives a kind of a weight to different readings. It goes from A to D, A, B, C, D, D being the lowest possibility, A being the best possibility. And this, this uh, particular text of... Matthew 18:15, um, that variant that does not have the words against you um, is, is those two words against you are put in brackets. Right. And then the weight that's given to including those two words is C, which means it's not very high. Right. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's something that we have to go by 
the decision of scholars that have made about uh, whether or not this word or that word or this phrase or that phrase should be left in the text or taken out of the right, text. Right. Now, is it true that you've committed the entire Greek New Testament to memory? I think that's true, <laughs> right? I wish I could. <laughs> Dr. Tashin, thank you very much. Let's give him a hand. Thank you very much, sir. This is one of those days in which this discussion is very important because it's two dramatically different sermons. If I come to you today and out of Matthew 18 to 15, we are talking today about what you do when somebody else in the church offends you, right? Sins against you. That is this sermon over here. But if it's just about what we do and how we understand our responsibility for one another when somebody sins, that's a very different sermon. And I would submit to you that next week when, when Simon Peter asked the question, how many times am I supposed to forgive someone? Next week we can talk about what happens and how we go about conflict resolution. Today's sermon is not about conflict resolution. Today's sermon is, I think, uh, just as important, if not more important than that, because we're having this discussion, what is my responsibility for the other people within my faith community when I notice that he or she are wandering away like that last sheep? I keep bringing that up because that is, is what this passage of Scripture is connected to. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that ever went astray. This is not so much about someone being personally offended. It's about that one that strays and what we're supposed to do. We see what Jesus does, but here this, what we see Jesus doing is what the body of Christ, we get that right, is what the body of Christ is also supposed to do. This is about a very hard question. How do we understand our responsibilities for one another? It says this, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that any one of these little ones should be lost. And if that's the case, then, then what do we do when we notice sheep 100 wandering away? What do we do? Okay, this is a very dangerous passage of scripture. This is a very dangerous sermon and, and, and because there are the, both extremes are really scary. On one side, the extreme over here is you do you. I don't want to get in your way. You're doing life the way that you understand it. You do you. And so it's none of my what? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? But the business world will tell us how to go about this. But on this side, it's also very scary. Over here, people strap on their guns and their badges, and they are the morality police. And they find in this passage of Scripture support for their willingness to go to somebody else and say, hey, you are wrong. Glad you're here today. Both of those, I would submit to you, miss the mark. It's one of the ways that we... We understand sin as missing the mark. So yes, what you've just heard me say is, in this discussion of whether or not we have responsibility for one another, I think you can sin on this side if you wash your hands of responsibility for anybody else. I also think you can sin on this side if you understand yourself to be the morality police. Christians make terrible morality policemen. 
If for some reason your understanding of faith and Christianity allows you to see the need to look in the mirror and see Barney Fife empowered as he might be to go and help somebody else to know how to be right because they're currently wrong, you don't understand us yet. I would like to give you a different image to work through as you employ and embody your Christianity. I would like for you to evacuate, (laughs) evacuate your mind and imagination of the image of the morality policeman and take up instead the first responders when storms hit. Does that make sense? You seen any of that recently? The kinds of first responders who, who aren't just doing what they're doing because somehow they get credit for doing it. They're doing it because they actually genuinely, deeply care about somebody else enough to put themselves in harm's way, to see to it that somebody is rescued. Christians make terrible morality deputies. But we make pretty good friends and first responders. I'm going to say it again, because if you only get one note down, that's the one I want you to get. Christians make terrible morality deputies, but we make pretty good friends and first responders. By design. By design. If another member of the church sins... Go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. When the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, then you've brought that hundredth sheep home. Okay? But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, other first responders, don't go looking for deputies, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, this entire process, not only does it have to be absolutely bathed, bathed in love as Christ defines it, and hopefully you are defining love the way Christ does, but if you aren't defining love the way Christ defines it, you need to shelve your definition in favor of Christ's definition of love. Everybody okay with that? Christians, Church people, it is not your working definition of love that matters. It is Christ's. What matters is how closely you can align yourself to Christ's working definition of love. So this entire process is just shot through with the love of Christ, but also humility. Because here's the thing about Christians. Now, morality uh, deputies don't very often wonder whether or not they're wrong. They're right. Not too long ago, I got a phone call. Someone had been surveying our church, and they were very deeply disturbed, listening to sermons, reading things about us, not just me, about y'all too. <laughs> very, very, very deeply disturbed, and said, just kept me on the phone for 30, 45 minutes, and kept saying, but couldn't you be wrong? Couldn't you be wrong? Couldn't you be wrong? And I finally said, listen, I'm doing the best I can, but the truth of the matter is, I am who I am, and just ask my wife, I can be wrong. And I said to her, is it possible that you're wrong? And she said, no. She said, no. Listen, here's the evidence, that I, all the evidence that I need that you might be wrong. 
you're breathing. <laughs> we are smarter than me. And when the process is shot through with love as Christ defines and embodies it, and humility that allows me to consider the possibility that I might be wrong, we are probably going to be, at least more often than not, right. Now again, this is not someone who has offended you. This is someone who perhaps is involved in behaviors that we would call self-destructive or, or destructive to the person or destructive to a family. And again, you have to be careful, church. You have to be careful because you're, you're hearing me. I'm going to keep railing at Barney Fife over here. But you also can't be the person who sits in the pew as if it's a theater seat, separated from the other people in your row. You can't be that person either who says, hey, not my problem. Can I tell you something? My walk of faith, <laughs> hear this, I don't know if I want this one put on Facebook, but listen, my walk of faith is your problem. Just as much as your walk of faith is my problem. Guess what? Faith is a team sport. You know the difference, right? There, there are individual sports and there are team sports. And a lot of people play faith as if it's an individual sport. I'm just kind of keeping score. I keep my own score. I'm, in, I'm meticulous about it. I don't cheat. I don't move the ball at all, Jason. I don't move it with my foot, nothing. I keep score. I know what my score, uh, by the way, I also kind of know what your score is, but I'm keeping my score. Faith is a team sport. If you are completely well-behaved, if you are perfectly well-behaved and the person next to you deteriorates and disintegrates and you do nothing about it, you have sinned. And for all intents and purposes, as I understand the parable of the sheep and the goats, you are lost. It's none of my business. You gave up that particular phrase when you were baptized. You gave up that particular phrase when we took you into membership. By the way, we're taking folks into membership September 24th. And here's one of the things we're going to say to you. Here's one of the things that Jason, we're going to kind of flip roles. I'm going to be the person that remembers all the names. Pray for me. <laughs> and Jason's going to be one standing out here saying, hey, these are really important questions. Are we going to do this together or not? And if these people can't understand that faith is a team sport, I need them to wait until they finally understand that faith is a team sport played lovingly as Christ defines love. Because, guys, we are the body of Christ. Now, some folks love this verse. Yes, this is finally the point at which I can determine somebody who is out and somebody uh, from somebody who is in. This is when I get to kick somebody out of the church. It's so, I mean, some people get so excited. Today, I get to kick somebody out of the church. Treat them as you would a Gentile, an outsider, or a tax collector. We still hate tax collectors, amen? <laughs> Remember, you don't get to use your definition 
of love or treat them as you would a Gentile or tax collector. Christ gets to determine that for us who want to be understood as the body of church. And so Christ is telling us how to, teach, how to treat Gentiles and tax collectors. Okay, so someone finally gets to the point where we have to say to him or to her, and guys, this is the worst part of what I do, but I've had to do it, to say to someone, you can't lead here. You can't teach here. What you're doing is catastrophically bad. It's contrary to covenant. You are damaging yourself and others along the way. You can't teach. You can't lead. Ten years ago, the board looked me in the eye. Big guys like Brent Conway looked me in the eye and they said, will you protect the church? And I said, yes, because you know what? It's the right thing to do. And so in protecting the church, I'm the guy who has at times, not very often, who has at times said, you've led, you can't lead. You've taught, you can't teach. But please stay. <laughs> but please stay. Because here's how our Savior treats Gentiles and tax collectors. Come eat with me. Stay close to me. Understand yourself to be loved by me. Understand yourself to be loved by us. Because always, always, always the church understands itself to be in the business of rescue. Rescue, bringing the Gentiles back, bringing the tax collectors in, always. And if someone finds themselves, after belonging, if they find themselves then in the category of Gentiles and tax collectors, then what do we do? Only what Jesus does, eat with me. Come back to us. You are loved, and as soon as you're ready, we want you back. You, you remember, right, that Jesus got in trouble for talking to the Samaritan woman? How I wish more Christians would get in trouble for talking to the wrong people. You remember, right, how Jesus dealt with tax collectors, right? Remember Zacchaeus? Everybody hated Zacchaeus. What did Jesus do? Obviously, he went and ate with him. What book, what book are we reading again right now together as a church? What book? Whose line of work was? And so Jesus said to this tax collector, who's outside the boundary, here's what Jesus said to him, you would make a fantastic disciple. What do you say? <laughs> and we're going to kick off this whole thing, Matthew. We're going to kick off this whole movement, this relationship between Jesus and, and Matthew. We're going to kick it off, by the way, at your house. Go get cleaned up because we're going to have a party at your house. And at the end of this whole thing, you, Matthew, will be... A disciple, treat people, says the scripture, as you would treat tax collectors and Gentiles, which means they're still your problem. <laughs> and they're still, they're still potential brothers and sisters. I have more, I'm not gonna do any more. Because I think this is the perfect time to gather around the table.
not as morality police, but as friends and first responders. And as folks who probably, maybe within the hour, maybe within the week, maybe within the month, people who probably might find ourselves in need of rescue. We gather around this table. We don't use the little individual cups and sips and the little, little bitty pieces of bread anymore. Not that people who do that now are, are not Christian. I'm not saying that at all. But we are intentionally pouring from this one giant thing of juice, and we are, we are breaking off of these, these, in, these larger sheets of bread so that we all are left with the correct impression that we are in this together. Faith is a team sport as decreed by our Savior. You don't get individual sips. You have to drink from the common cup. You don't get hermetically sealed pieces of bread, untouched by human hands. This bread, my promise to you is, has been touched by human hands. Ours. And you belong here with us. So if you're coming to set this very important table, come. We've had some, uh, some turnover in our junior leaders. A bunch of them moved up to the youth group, and so we have some other fresh faces. I'm very excited about how we're going to incorporate some of these folks into the mix here. So go ahead and come on up if you're helping us today. Let me pray for us and get us started. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. And somehow, Lord, with these elements... Remind us, show us, convince us again that faith is a team sport. Show us, God, how it is that we are connected to one another. Help us to know how to be connected to one another. Help us to take seriously the words of Scripture that we heard today. Do not let us be moral policemen, but help us to be friends and first responders, people who are genuinely and deeply interested in rescue and recovery and relationship in other words, God, as we partake of your body and your blood, help us to be more like you. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. This is different, too, if you're new to our church. This may be different for you. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, and then come forward with your hands cupped to receive this gift. We're going to give everybody in the room a gift today. You'll approach a person holding bread. And over here, it'll be Jessica who snaps off a piece of bread, presses it into your hand and says, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't eat it just yet, but dip it into the cup. Sam is holding a cup over here. When you do dip it into that cup, Sam's gonna say to you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then find a place to pray. And folks, we got plenty to pray about. This is a good time to pray for first responders and friends and family who are in South Texas or in Florida. This is a great time to do that. If you were baptized today, first of all, congratulations. You and your families, after you take, would you please come and gather around this altar so that we can pray for you. Dr. Tashin will pray that prayer for you. 
And my Old Testament professor, Dennis Bratcher, has surgery tomorrow, open heart surgery. And we're gonna pray for you at this altar and anoint you, we love you. In fact, if you're in need of a prayer for healing, physical, emotional, mental, relational, theological, these side padded altars are reserved for you. And someone will meet you at those altars to anoint you with oil and pray that prayer for healing. These other altars are open for any other prayers of any other kinds. Someone will meet you there and pray with you, perhaps silently, touching you on the back of the head, the neck, the shoulder. We just want you to know that you're not alone. And folks, this little bowl here is significant. It contains just a little bit of water, just enough to jog your memory, the memory of your baptism, a tangible reminder of your baptism. Because perhaps you've forgotten that you belong. Well, may this water jog your memory and welcome you back home. If you can't come to us, then Jason and little Katie are coming to you today. Who is welcome at this table? Hear this. Everyone who understands their need for grace. And maybe you understand your need for grace and you haven't failed recently, or maybe you failed today and you're keenly aware of your need for grace. All of you, all of us, are welcome at this table today. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you, and every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on, he took the cup and he held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, and every time, a new covenant, <laughs> and every time you drink of it, remember me. And I would say, remember that you're being shaped to be first responders here, not policemen. So now across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet. Exit your pew to the left and come forward with your hands cupped, ready to receive the gifts of God meant for the people of God. All of you have been baptized, please come. Afterwards, you and your families to gather around this altar. There won't be quite enough room. That's okay. And if you're in need of prayers for healing, come to one of the side padded altars. Thank you for being here today.
still understand these altars to be open for you for sure and if you were just baptized if you could we'll have you gather around actually that last uh, that last altar over here so if you were baptized today if you and your families could come and gather around that last altar closest closest to the baptistry that would be great 
I'm going to pray a brief prayer of confession. Ask Dr. Bratcher to gather here at this healing altar for anointing. And I'll pray this prayer of confession and petition before handing it over to uh, Dr. Tashton. If you see someone here, someone for whom you could be the tangible expression of care and the love of God, would you do that just to make sure that nobody is alone as they pray today? Dear Heavenly Father, we confess that at times we do fall off on the wrong sides of this particular discussion. We confess, God, that we have it in us to say quietly to ourselves, this is none of my business what he, what she is doing to himself, to herself, to them. It's none of my business. We have that in us, Lord. We've been sort of coached that direction by a culture that tells us that we are better disconnected than connected. We also, Lord, have it in us to be police types, postured in ways that would have us judging and accusing and rendering someone unfit. And yet, God, we also believe we have the capacity to follow you. So, God, would you remind us what it means to be the church, what it means to be parts of a worshiping community, a community of faith that voluntarily and wholeheartedly takes responsibility for the other, for the other very close to me and for the other not as close to me, for the other sitting next to me and the other sitting across the room, across the sanctuary. Help us to God to know how to go about being the church, specifically today as it has to do with our responsibility for the other as he or she wanders away. And then God grant us the courage to do the right thing So much to pray about today. So many people to pray for. If you would, would you take these moments now to pray for someone you might know in South Texas or someone in Florida, victims of these devastating storms right now. Just pray that God's presence would be evident and volunteer to be available to make God's presence evident in one place or another. fellowship we need your prayers as well for healing, for help, for hope I'm going to offer up their names and have you pray however you'd like please pray for LaDonna Bennett as she recovers
Please pray for Glenn and Betty Fain. For Debbie McKenzie. For Len Caprero. For Dennis Bratcher. hear us as we pray for these recently baptized shape them into our body gracious father we thank you that through the waters of baptism and the gift of your holy spirit you have bestowed on these your children the gift and the grace of forgiveness and new life with the resurrected Christ. We pray that you will give each of them the heart and the will and the determination to follow in the way of Christ, to live their lives for you, to seek your will and your direction for them, to live their life in honor and in service to you, to seek and to learn and to grow in your grace. And grant all of us as your people to surround them with our love, with our prayer, with our support, with our encouragement, with instructions, with guidance, and most of all, with the example that we set before them, a life of godly living and holy living. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is one with you and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. And now, with the confidence of children of God, let us conclude this time of prayer with the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples using debts and debtors. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.